Section 25 of Stuper Mundi, The Life and Times of Frederick II by Lionel Alshorn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 13, A New Enemy, Part 1. In the Cardinal I have lost a good friend. In the Pope I shall find my worst enemy. Such were Frederick's words when his courtiers congratulated him on the elevation of one who in the past had seemed his friend. He had no illusions about the endurance of that friendship. No pope can be a Ghibelline, he said. Yet even he must have been astounded at the sudden change from the supposed goodwill to the rancorous enmity which seemed to blaze up in the heart of Cinebald with the assumption of his new title and dignity. Innocent the Fourth soon proved that all the more repellent features of Gregory's character were present in his own to a superlative degree. No pope before him, not Hildebrand himself, had asserted with such amazing audacity the ineffable sanctity of the papal person. We are no mere man, he declared. We have the place of God upon earth. His bearing was consistent in its domineering arrogance with such a pretension. The humility, the gentleness, the charity which might seem to be the fitting attributes of the vicar of Christ found no place in his relentless nature. He left behind him, says Milman, a name odious for ambition, rapacity, and implacable pride. His greed was insatiable, and before his death he is reputed to have become the wealthiest pope that had ever occupied the chair. England suffered even more grievously from his extortions than from those of his predecessor. He was wont to refer to her as our garden of delights, our inexhaustible well. To her despicable king as our vassal, or rather our slave. Her benefices were filled by Italian priests who might live in what manner they would, so long as they sent a goodly portion of the wealth of their flock to Rome. The money gathered by his agents went rarely to any more holy purpose than the persecution of the emperor or the enrichment of his own relatives. The sin of nepotism was his especial crime in the eyes of good churchmen. His kinsmen were made cardinals, bishops, and abbots, or endowed with civil offices. Wretches, why are ye weeping? he was reported to have said to them as they gathered around his deathbed. Have I not made you all rich enough? In the choice of his instruments he paid little heed to holiness of life as a qualification for advancement. Among his legates might be found ruthless warriors such as Cardinal Renier, drunkards such as the Bishop of Ferrara, profligates such as Montelengo, or dishonest knaves such as Albert von Baham. The church itself groaned under his oppression and greed. His favorite agents, the Franciscan and Dominican friars swarmed over every country, intruded into every parish, and spied upon every prelate or priest who was suspected of falling short in that unquestioning submission to the papal authority which was incumbent upon ecclesiastics. In every corner of the empire they sowed the seed of sedition and revolt, preying upon the superstition of the ignorant and threatening with the torments of hell those who should cleave to that prince of Belial, their temporal lord. With such a pope there could be no possibility of peace unless Frederick should cast aside his pride, surrender his honor, and clad in sackcloth and ashes 
go in penitence to his enemy and cast himself down before his feet. To the unspeakable ignominy of such another Canossa, it was not likely that Frederick would ever descend. He might be passionately anxious for an end to this futile strife, might be ready to humiliate himself in some measure by yielding to harsh demands, but to an abject and unconditional submission he would never fall. The new pontificate could not, however, open without some overtures of peace. The emperor's congratulations upon his new dignity were borne to innocent by Peter de Vinia and Thaddeus of Suessa. An embassy returned to him with the pope's conditions, which must be fulfilled before more serious negotiations could be commenced. If a truce was to be made, it must include all those who had fought for the church. The prelates and priests who still lingered in confinement in Naples must be released. The emperor must state what satisfaction he was ready to give for the crimes which had induced Gregory to excommunicate him. The church on her side, if by any chance she had done him any wrong, would do him justice. On this matter and on many others a general council composed of kings, princes, and prelates should decide. Frederick, too, had his conditions. The papal legate Montalengo must be recalled from Milan. His presence there lent the countenance of the papacy to the rebels. Salinguera, who had been treacherously imprisoned after the capture of Ferrara by the papal allies, must be released. It was a cause of offence that the archbishop of Mentz, while under the ban of the empire, had been made legate in Germany. The pope must take active steps to suppress heresy in Lombardy. He must cease to slight the imperial dignity by refusing to admit Frederick's ambassadors to his presence. Innocent answered these demands in sequence. The emperor had no business to question the pope's right to send his legates where he would. Salinguera was the captive of the men of Venice. His release was no affair of the pope's. The archbishop of Mentz was a devout son of the church and should retain his office as legate. Touching the heresy of the Lombards, it was impossible for the pope to deal with that until the emperor had abandoned his warfare against them. The imperial ambassadors shared the excommunication of their lord and could not therefore be permitted to gaze upon the face of the pope. He would, however, concede so much as to absolve them from the excommunication and with them the Archbishop of Palermo, who had performed the forbidden sacred offices before Frederick in defiance of the sentence of the Church. Other causes of dispute arose. The inclusion of the Lombards in the truce continued to be an insuperable obstacle. Innocent also demanded that the two provinces of Ancona and Spoleto, which Frederick had torn from the Church, should be restored. Frederick replied that they had been given by him to the papacy, and had been justly forfeited by Gregory's conduct. He would, however, consent to hold them in feudal tenure from the Pope, would supply a body of five hundred knights when required, and would pay a yearly rent into the papal coffers. He would also undertake the reconquest of the Holy Land at his own cost. But nothing would satisfy Innocent but the complete restoration of the provinces. They were too valuable an adjunct to his temporal power to be relinquished. The relations between the two parties became more and more precarious. The Pope wrote to Montalengo urging him to stir up the Lombards to a more active warfare against the Emperor. Frederick sent two friars to the gallows for carrying seditious letters, 
and kept a strict watch upon the roads to Rome to intercept any stores of money that might be on their way thither. The revolt of Viterbo threatened to precipitate an open rupture. This city had cast off its allegiance to the Pope in 1240, and had invited Frederick to become its lord. Its citizens had seen him build a vast stronghold of eighteen towers, called the Castle of Hercules, as a sign of his authority, and had uttered no word of protest. Now, however, in the August of 1243, they broke out into sudden rebellion. The imperial captain, Count Simon of Chieti, withdrew into the castle and prepared to withstand a siege. The Cardinal Renier hastened with his forces to the assistance of the rebellious townsmen and blockaded the garrison. Count Simon dispatched urgent appeals to his master for succor. The fathers of old, he wrote to Frederick, did not look for Christ's coming more eagerly than we look for your arrival. Show your face and we shall be saved. The Pope protested to the Emperor that the Cardinal Renier was acting without his instructions but secretly sent a large sum of money to the militant churchmen. Frederick appeared before Viterbo early in October and laid siege to the city. Two months passed in vain endeavors to batter down its walls. Then Cardinal Otto came to the emperor bearing urgent requests for peace from Innocent. If Frederick would agree to withdraw from Viterbo, the imperial garrison and the ghibellines of the city should be allowed to join him unmolested. To that, Otto pledged his word of honor. Frederick agreed, and the garrison left their stronghold. They were immediately attacked by the populace at the instigation of the friars, and Otto strove in vain to save them. Many were killed, many captured, but few reached the imperial camp. The emperor withdrew his forces from the city which had withstood his might, and complained loudly to the pope of the treacherous massacre of his soldiers, the Pope replied that it was no matter for surprise that a city should return to its true lord. So uncompromising an answer should have assured Frederick that it was futile to hope for peace, but he curbed his anger and made one more attempt. Peter de Vinia, Thaddeus of Suessa, and the Count of Toulouse were sent to Rome with full powers to arrange a treaty by whose terms the emperor should abide. These terms, as propounded by the Pope, were harsh in the extreme. The Emperor must restore all the lands which he had taken from the papacy or its adherents since his excommunication in 1239. He must explain to the world that his disregard of that excommunication was not prompted by any contempt for the late Pope, but by the fact that the sentence had never been formally and personally declared to him. There was, he must aver, no question about the Pope's right to excommunicate him, and he must henceforth respect the excommunication until he should be formally absolved. For his offense in this matter, he must atone by fasting and almsgiving and must pay a fine hereafter to be named. The prelates whom he still held in captivity must be released and amply compensated for their losses and sufferings. The compensation should be estimated by three cardinals. A free pardon and amnesty must be granted to all who had fought on the side of the church, all prisoners must be released, all exiles recalled. The Pope and his cardinals should arbitrate between the emperor and the Lombard rebels. All these things should be carried out, saving only the honor and the integrity of the empire. And then, 
and not till then should the emperor be absolved and received back into the bosom of mother church to this treaty which deprived frederick of all the material advantages he had gained in the late wars which relegated him to the position of the conquered when the balance of success had certainly weighed in his favour the imperial ambassadors set their seal on march thirty first twelve forty four it was agreed that its terms should be kept secret until such time as both parties consented to their publication frederick uttered no protest when he heard of the hard bargain that his enemy had driven but wrote joyfully to his son conrad of the impending reconciliation it was too soon however for rejoicing the pope was not sincere he had expected no doubt that the emperor would repudiate the treaty and thus place himself in the wrong and when frederick accepted it without reservation he began to repent that he had not exacted more humiliating terms the gall arose in him and he commenced a series of wanton provocations with the object of goading the emperor into retaliation he buzzed like an angry wasp a slight reaction against his popularity in rome was attributed to frederick's treacherous machinations the stipulation that the terms of the treaty should be kept secret was flagrantly violated and men might purchase copies at the lateran for sixpence he vowed that the compensation of the prelates for their imprisonment by the emperor should cost the imperial treasury a prodigious sum he declared that in his arbitration between the emperor and the lombards he would consult only those cardinals whom he chose he worked himself up into a fury and said that the lombards should have his help whether the emperor was absolved or no the men of viterbo meanwhile were slaughtering and plundering the friends of the empire in their neighbourhood but frederick held his hand and would do nothing to give innocent cause to retire from the truce frederick's calmness and restraint seemed to exasperate innocent the more he moved from rome nominally to meet the emperor and arrange more comprehensive and final terms of peace he halted at narni some few miles distant from the emperor's resting-place at terni these two towns had striven against each other in the late wars and innocent declared that there should be no peace until the men of terni had made compensation for the defeat they had wrought on the men of narni he had agreed to meet frederick at rieti halfway between the two towns but the whole journey was merely a deception and his real plans were now complete rome he had decided was no comfortable abode for him the emperor was too near and too powerful the populace of the city too fickle he would retire to a safer distance where he might pursue his designs against the emperor in safety on the twenty seventh of june instead of advancing to rieti he fell back to sutri a report was spread that frederick had sent a body of troops to capture him pretending to credit this wise and salutary fiction as his chaplain terms it he mounted his horse soon after midnight and rode furiously through the dark hours until he arrived at civita vecchia five cardinals followed hard in his wake and joined him on board a genoese galley twenty of which were awaiting his arrival according to his carefully laid plans seven days later the fleet rode into the harbour of genoa our soul is escaped even as a bird out of the snare of the fowler said innocent as he entered his native city the snare is broken and we are delivered he was received with a tumultuous welcome the streets were decked with velvets and silks and banners 
the bells pealed joyfully, the trumpets blared, and the long procession of priests and choristers chanted, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Frederick, meanwhile, was in no amiable frame of mind. The wicked flee when no man pursueth, he quoted. He realized that Innocent had been playing with him in these long negotiations. He cursed his captains in the Campagna roundly for their negligence in allowing the Pope to elude them. He declared that Innocent had gone to Genoa to place himself at the head of the Lombard rebels. He advanced northwards to Pisa, perhaps with the intention of laying siege to the city that harbored his enemy. Innocent, however, had no intention of remaining in such close proximity to the imperial power. In November, he left Genoa, journeying northwards across the Alps, and on the 2nd of December arrived at Lyon. Here he was safe from the emperor's clutches, for Lyon, though nominally a part of the empire, was a free city under the authority of its archbishop. He would have preferred, indeed, to have sought an even safer abode, to have found refuge under the protection of a monarch who would espouse his cause. But no monarch was anxious to shelter so formidable a guest. The pious king of France visited him at the monastery of Cito and knelt before him in becoming reverence. His reply to the Pope's request for an asylum at Reims, however, was to refer the matter to his nobles and counsellors, and these declined the heavy and costly responsibility. The king of Aragon regretted that he could not undertake to offer the Holy Father the hospitality of his kingdom. The king of England might lend an ear to the honeyed words of the papal legate. What an immortal glory for your reign, said that dignitary, if the father of fathers should personally appear in England. He has often said that it would give him great pleasure to see the pleasant city of Westminster and wealthy London but the father of fathers was in bad odor with the king's council. We have already suffered too much, they replied, from the usuries and simonies of Rome. We do not want the Pope to pillage us. Matthew Paris comments on this refusal in sufficiently picturesque language. The evil name of the papal court, he writes, the stench of which exhaled its foul smoke to the clouds, deserved that such a result should ensue. End of section 25.